0: Welcome to Greystone Conversations, the podcast of Greystone Theological Institute. We invite you to join us as we explore brief scripture and theology studies, share interviews, discuss texts old and new, and listen in on Greystone special lecture events and selections from full Greystone course modules. We're delighted that you're with us today. Thank you for your support of Greystone Theological Institute, and once again, welcome.
1: Welcome back, Michael and uh, Joshua, to Greystone Conversations as we continue, in fact, today conclude our series of conversations related to Greystone's MAP initiative, the Mechanical Arts Program, uh, this being the fifth of five uh, conversations about this this initiative and the subject matter that it touches on and explores and in different ways looks to deploy. We have been on quite a wild journey in terms of subject matter. From the beginning, we have covered, to keep that image, a lot of terrain, and gone in and out and around again. But we have continued over and over again to return to uh, to touch base, as it were, with some of our originating concerns and interests, which are not limited to work as such, even particular uh, forms of labor as such. But the more general idea of workmanship, craftsmanship, and what it says about the human person, what it says about God's world, and in what way this is worthwhile, at least, for Christians in general to reflect on, and perhaps ministers of the gospel, ministers of word and sacrament, and other church leaders to pause over quite deliberately— with a view to service in the church it is subject matter of again more general interest and i think christians across the board as it were will have interest in this but we have we have kept an eye throughout on the difference it makes to think this way and frankly to operate this way in a variety of pastoral and communal contexts so thank you so much for the way you've led us through that so far And I wonder if we could begin our last conversation today by thinking a little bit about what might account for the resurgence of interest generally in craftsmanship and workmanship, in the trades and related matters, related uh, activities, particularly the interest that has explored ways we might either connect the trades or DIY work or things of that nature to the meaning of things generally, either discover or impart to these tasks, uh, as it were, metaphysical value and significance, or which has seen these activities as themselves figures of real life and what we are as, as human persons. There's been a lot of interest in in doing this for at least a few decades now, reaching at least as far back as the 1970s and the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And more recent books have have caught public interest as well along these lines, some of which are written by Christians, some are not. But everything from work as such and the whole movement of which there are various iterations of a faith and work interest in, in Christian spheres, to the big, large questions about life and, and human being and relations provoked by developments in AI, artificial intelligence. This has been on the radar now for some time in different forms. What do you think about the discussion as it has taken place so far? These works that have demonstrated quite a bit of interest in craft and craftsmanship, or with our relationship to things more generally, do you think that they have been on the whole helpful? Do you see any blind spots, as it were, or some uh, lacunae where you think it would be helpful to see more thinking or more work done? How would you evaluate the state of the question, as it were, in light of things that we have, have said so far? Mike, is there anything that pops to mind for you already as we've been this far so far in our series and now have a chance to, to think about the the current form of the discourse?
0: My first thought is that the you, you pointed to uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance in the 1970s. More recent texts that come to mind would be like Matthew Crawford's work on, on Shopcraft as Soulcraft. But I think that we can go all the way... Back to the 19th century and, and the Arts and Crafts movement mm-hmm. uh, as a as an earlier precursor, which which then raises this question for me as to whether or not we're we're not stuck in a kind of cycle of eternal recurrence here, from the onset of industrialization to the present, where you have these eruptions of movements, counterpoints to kind of the prevailing material culture that seeks to recover something. Uh, whether we understand that as the, the quality of the work, the distinctiveness of the work, the meaning of the work, both as objects to be possessed, but also as objects to be made. So, you know, I think there are two dimensions to that. You know, one is the maker, the art of making the craft in this sense, but also what we as the possessor of the final artifact, what we hold in our hands and its value and its meaning. So it can be looked at from both of those perspectives. Again, a kind of recurring uh, counterpoint that I think suggests that there's something ultimately unsatisfying about the premise that somehow all that we need is more cheaply available stuff, right? And I think this is the, even up to the present in its latest iteration in the prospects of automation and various forms of artificial intelligence, what seems to be the the underlying bet as it were right or 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 wager is that an abundance of stuff virtual or otherwise is going to be sufficiently satisfying as a trade-off for fewer skilled jobs fewer opportunities to to be not only a consumer but a person who creates who works meaningfully who has tasks to accomplish uh, and can feel a measure of satisfaction for having accomplished them. So I suppose that maybe I would suggest whether or not this trade-off has not been with us now for 150 years plus and whether we just keep running into various iterations of it and and whether expanding the timeline in that way helps us at all or Mm. or just gives us, you know, another layer of examples to, to consider in this dynamic I'll pause there for the moment, and I'm not sure whether that was a good point for us to take off from.
1: It is. I want to come back to that in just a moment as well, but could I ask if you think that paired up with that hope, that expectation that more stuff will be cheaper and more, and more things will be the solution, I guess, for some perceived but maybe unarticulated uh, problem. Could it be paired up with a hope, an expectation that we just haven't yet developed the technologies we need in order to resolve the problem as well, that there's an expectation that we will continue to develop in our ways of making things that will finally bring us to the point where we have made the thing that's, that remedies this in one way or another. Is it just the flip side of the same hope, the same thinking, the same expectation, or is it a distinct part of it?
0: I think the problem is, is that the, the way that, A lot of our technologies are designed and the mindset or ideology, if you like, that drives them is this premise that we simply need to displace human labor for the sake of efficiency and affordability of the final product. Market forces obviously are at play here. And so the underlying premise is that it still remains that, you know, you will have stuff and have it cheaply and and that you will be disburdened, you know, from all sorts Mm -hmm. of various tasks. And so the promise is always a certain flexibility or a certain convenience, amount of convenience and some form of material abundance, right? So you, you get more time, you have to do less, it can be done faster or quicker and you get more stuff. I think those are the kind of the promises on offer in terms of the kinds of technologies that we make, so we 're asking with AI for example that the the way that a lot of these conversations are currently framed is in terms of of what these tools can replace, how can they replace us, what kinds of jobs will they replace and to some degree they're they 're designed without a ton of considerations along those lines, kind of thought along those lines and so a better question might be, you know, how can we support existing workers? How, how can we make tools that assist us along certain lines rather than displacing or overtaking or seeking to entirely mimic what human beings do, which then raises the prospects of replacing human involvement? I don't know to what degree there's any kind of thoughtfulness behind the design of these tools or the implementation of these tools. I think if we question the premise that material abundance, efficiency, convenience are sufficient first order goods for human beings, then I think that would cause us to think twice about the kinds of tools that we're developing, the kinds of things we want those tools to achieve for us.
1: Oh, very well put. That's really helpful. Mike, thoughts on that, Joshua?
2: I think I would just add when we're thinking about these goods that are available to so many of us and we think about, okay, so we're we're talking about the origin of why are people embracing crafts right now in the midst of that, with all that's available, why are people, you know, a handful Mm -hmm. of people, a lot of people choosing Mm -hmm. to take a step out and to learn some sort of handcraft, something archaic and not necessary anymore. Why would people do that? And I think that just based on my own observations and experience you know, I think that a lot of people, what I hear from people in that situation, myself included, while there is a, a relatively large wholesale embrace of all that industrial technology can deliver, we have a lot of benefits. At the same time, the success of the so-called frictionless experience, that there's no friction to use this device, you know, and how it's intuitive, you can just you press the button, it just clicks. And there's, there's no feedback. There's no friction. The more and more our life is set up with no friction, the more and more we have no traction. We're floating and we're just sliding around. Mm-hmm. And it, there's, the, there's a sense in which we don't have anything to get a grip on. And we're kind of floating around and we feel useless. We feel displaced already. The experience of consuming the thing that is so satisfying. Is in the very moment also displacing and dissatisfying. So it's this vicious loop. So this is what I have felt myself, and I've heard from other people. And so it's interesting because you know I think a lot of people can be holding on to that, you know, their Instagram feed while they're at the same time buying a vintage typewriter and they're posting on Instagram about their typewriter they just got. And you know I think what that's pointing at is. You know, a lot of us feel we want to use Luddite as a pejorative. You know, we want to say, oh, I'm not a Luddite. I embrace all that there is. But at the same time, we also say, you know what? There are parts of my life that I don't want to be frictionless. I actually want to grip things. I want to have a grasp on parts of the world. And so they go to typewriters or they go to, they go buy a record player or they want to, they want to feel, they want tactile things. And so I think that's um, the entry point for a lot of people is they start saying, I think life is too smooth. I want to I feel the world. I want to extend my, myself out there and have interactions and engage with the world. And I think that's the entry point for a lot of people thinking about, okay, well, what is the value of the work of my hands?
0: And I think it's important to, to at least in passing note that there can be other dynamics at work as well that might be worth, you know, distinguishing. And one of them is that the pursuit of distinction, right? Of how we distinguish ourselves from another or from the mainstream or from the majority of what ordinary people buy and consume and what they do. The combination of Instagram right and the typewriter is an interesting one, right? Because it, it reminds me it reminds me in some respects of Instagram's origins, which I think are now largely forgotten as an app that would apply a kind of old-timey filter to your photos, right? So that you get this grainy analog vintage quality. Mm -hmm. Um, And all of that together reminds me of the peak of the hipster movement around 2010 or so. And I think a lot of that was tied up with the performance of a certain refusal of the mainstream or whatever. And, 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 you know, honestly, that's fine, even if it leads to something deeper, more substantive. I often found myself trying to distinguish those things and to salvage it and celebrate that instinct that there's something lacking in the effortless, the frictionless, certainly the the wholly automated approach to to consumer technology and, and to ordering our lives. As I, I was thinking about what do we seek in these kinds of products, in these kinds of artifacts? And four things came to mind. I'm not sure if they'd be worth talking about a little bit, but as I think about the craft made product or the product that has some kind of distinguishes it from the, you know, the mass produced the industrial product, something that comes to mind is that it it gives us meaning. And this is both in the owning the possessing and the the creation, right? A sense of satisfaction, Mm -hmm. a sense of competence, maybe a little bit more esoterically, a kind of stability across time. And I'm thinking of the way that Hannah Arendt talks about a common world of things that human beings need a measure of stability in that world as if to anchor their identity, their sense of community over time. And this is random, but I think Mark will at least appreciate it. I was thinking of the wine key as. You're right. I over... appreciate
1: it already. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Right. Right. So the, the bartender's tool, right? The conventional wine key, which is a very simple tool to use to open a wine bottle. We can contrast it to all of the the powered implements, the gadgets, sophisticated gadgets that might try to do that same tool. But but They're I think horrible,
1: what, absolutely horrible.
0: Yeah, I think what struck me about that is not just the the simplicity and the elegance of the tool. It, you know, usually is is just a very sleek thing—a handle, the corkscrew, and then the portion where you use it as a lever against the lip of the wine bottle, right? But what struck me about that is that it actually. Requires just the right amount of effort relative to the task that you're doing, right? There's a little bit of physical effort involved. There's a little bit of art and how you place it. And it, it makes you feel as if you have a kind of competence in that. And again, some of these examples are always seem a little trivial, but I think it's, it's illustrative of a larger pattern, right? That we, we want not things to just be done effortlessly necessarily. There is something that we gain from exerting a certain amount of effort relative to the task and also experiencing a sense of competence in in what we're doing. And with something that lasts, if I say hypothetically to stick with the same example, pass that down to one of my daughters and they continue to own it into their adult years, the durability of the of the artifact allows meaning to accumulate around it over time. And I think that durability is, is important as well.
1: May I indulge the wine image for just a moment longer since you've opened the door, Michael, then <laughs> as you, as you well know, I'm not going to leave it open and not run right,
0: through. Right.
1: I mentioned this quite some time ago in another Greystone Conversations podcast episode, but I'll, I'll bring it back here because I think this resonates potentially quite well, helpfully, with what we've been after throughout our conversations. And which we referred to, frankly, in our last conversation as well, with the shift in, even in the sciences that has taken place over the last century or so, where now we're in a a situation of of division, of divide, where on the one hand, the sciences have really taken the deep dive down to the smallest conceivable, not only observable, but the smallest conceivable elements of a thing as the way to discover the real thing, take it apart and examine its parts at the smallest level possible, which is incidentally why many children have a great interest in biology. And then as they grow up and they take their first biology class, they discover they don't like biology at all because they grew up loving birds and dogs and frogs. And they uh, are in this first day of their biology class and they're being told about cells and mitochondria and so on. And they conclude wrongly, no, I don't really have an interest in biology after all. On the other hand, there has been a recent push to go bigger and bigger and try to reclaim some sense of the meaning of everything, as it were, as the physicists have often called it and have tried to explore it. In the wine world, this has come up in the, the fascinating, though mysterious element of terroir. Terroir as that indefinable, in the sense of we can't nail it down, quality of wine and ability of wine to communicate its place. We know that it's true. We don't know exactly how it's true. And it can't be reduced to molecules and cells and pheromones and so on. There's there's something about the the reality we can't exhaust, but we can certainly describe. And one writer, uh, Matt Kramer, in his essay on the notion of terroir, in a book called Appropriately Wine and Philosophy, it's a really quite helpful collection of essays, he compares this inability for the West, especially with our mindset to explain terroir with the reason why Western medicine has not been able to figure out some things that Eastern medicine figured out a long time ago. And he refers specifically to the Chinese practitioners of acupuncture And he explains that centuries ago, Chinese practitioners chose to view the body from a perspective utterly different than that of the dissective anatomical approach of Western medicine. And because of this different perspective, they discovered something about the body that Western practitioners to this day are unable to independently see for themselves, what the Chinese call channels and collaterals, or more recently meridians. The terminology is unimportant. What is important, Kramer says, is that these meridians cannot be found by dissection. Yet they exist. Acupuncture works. Its effects, if not its causes, are demonstrable. In the same way, seeking to divine the greatness of Burgundy, the wine that may be example par excellence of the phenomenon of terroir, only by dissecting its intricacies of climate, grape, soil, and winemaking is no more enlightening then learning how to knit by unraveling a sweater. And the image, I think, is helpful. What we've been talking about is a whole person reality, frankly, a whole reality reality, in which we locate and therefore are able to describe faithfully the meaning of a thing and the meaning of what we do in particular in a relationship to things, which we cannot get at if we are simply taking apart the particular action or task itself, or the item, the element, the artifact to its smallest measurable parts. The whole person perspective may be somewhat foreign to our default mindset as modern Westerners, at least. And that may have something to do with our struggle to connect what we do with with who we are. Does that sound possible as far as you're concerned?
0: Yeah, certainly that there are, there are realities that are apprehended, the only apprehended at the appropriate scale. This is, I think, how I would put it, right? That the phenomena of, of terroir or, you know, the kind of difficult to articulate elements of, of craft that we've been discussing, they emerge out of operations at a, at a particular scale. And then if we, if we try to, to dissect, to analyze the process of breaking things down into its constituent parts in order to gain the best understanding, that we actually lose our capacity to see or experience these realities. And I think that's that's absolutely true, and certainly part of what's maybe happening here.
1: Seems like a lot of this can be reduced to the knowing that is only possible by the doing, that is only possible by way of the friction-welcoming mode of life rather than the friction averse. You mentioned, Joshua, earlier The the life or the reality without friction also has no traction, which was a really helpful way of putting it. Mike was actually the one who first put me on the frictionless danger many years ago in things he was writing. And I've, I've used it myself on many occasions. And I'm going to have to throw yours in there and help explain it by way of your helpful form of words there but does this fit what you're after in saying it that way Joshua Yeah I think definitely
2: it's interesting listening to you know Mike when you were talking about the what I would describe as the associative value the connection associating with across time with ancestors through artifacts this associative connection that we can have you know right. I made a living restoring antique furniture. And that was the reason almost every single piece of furniture came into my studio was associative value. It's not because the the given artifact yielded X amount of dollars in a in an auction. Mm. Some of them were valuable, but some of them were just you know just a Victorian share that this individual client associated with her grandmother or something. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is a powerful thing but it's it's interesting thinking too in when we're talking about someone who is entering a, a craft or let's just say let's just say there's this book that was handed to me because it was recommended they said oh you're into old-timey stuff you'd love this book <laughs> um and it's it is called revenge of the analog and it's basically a guy he was talking about um record shops and other sorts of analog as he put it, things in the world, kind of along this similar sort of theme, but it was interesting reading it because the sense I got away, f- coming away from it, is what he was. This particular author, whose name I don't recall at the time, but David, David Sachs. It's, it's, okay, yeah, it's a similar sort of argument I've heard a lot that, to me, almost reminds me of like a nostalgia. So the, the reason someone would embrace a typewriter or a record player might be the same reason they would wear a certain style of shoes or a certain hairstyle. And there's almost a sense of nostalgia that they want to connect with something outside. And there's sort of a grasping going on saying, I know what's going on right now is not satisfying. And there's just something out there. I've actually even seen within this, the sewing world. My brother-in-law, is, he makes these amazing clothes. And he you know, mentioned this kind of trend that there are people today, right now, all over Instagram and their thing is Victorian clothing and they just wear Victorian clothing all the time. They stitch it all by hand and that's their whole thing. And it's just curious to me because I think I've actually heard someone compare what Mortis and Tenon is doing to that kind of thing. And I'm like, oh that's that's not the same vision. And so I'm curious what you guys think about what the difference is between that and just nostalgia.
1: Mm, that's helpful. The associative phenomenon you referred to, I think is a a really helpful point of departure for thinking through that. As you were explaining, there are positive reasons you were referring to furniture and there are positive reasons. We want to stay connected with someone or some something and someone by way of something in ways like that. I think it's a reminder of uh, a truth of our createdness and our anti-Gnostic Christian faith, when it comes to how we think through that relationship, things matter, but they matter not as abstractions. They matter in their emplacement, which is a relational as well as a environmental thing. But that association, as we know, could also be negative. I don't want this anymore because it is associated with someone I don't want to be connected with anymore. I don't want to go to that place anymore because I was there with this person, And that is no longer a relationship or a relation, an association I want to keep alive. So either I will never go back there again, or I will go there with the right person and, as it were, redeem the location by doing that. And we can do that with any number of objects, locations, and so on. The nostalgia element, I think, fits within that overall picture of the associative, but I think it's very complicated, and I think we we want to be careful not to overreact to those who are wrestling with nostalgia by simply saying, well, what you are imagining never was real. That's not the real Victorian world. They, that's not how people really were. You're actually nostalgic for a fiction because people weren't really that way, or you're ignoring a lot of other things that are true about the Victorian world, and if you were only accounting for them, you wouldn't have the nostalgia Well, true though that may be, along the lines of kind of historiography and and so on, no one thinks that way, and that's not what nostalgia is actually about. Any more than biblical historical narratives are there simply to inform you about the facts of another era. No, they are presented the way they are to shape you, to form you, to desire some things and not others. And to invite you, in a way, to inhabit the world you imagine precisely because the story is told the way that it is. Nostalgia can be defended, even for those who, again, aren't working with the so-called real Victorian world or the real world of the medieval guilds, which is a common thing we will all encounter in our context I wish things were like the old medieval village where everybody knew each other and the church was in the center of town and everybody did this manual labor and and so on and shared their milk the next morning. We don't have to go the route of, well, that's not really what the medieval world was like. You're forgetting the plague. You're forgetting this and that. Because what matters is not so much the historical referent, but there really is an imagined life or features to it that the nostalgic person is inhabiting by desiring it. In the form that they do. And we can evaluate the content, as it were, of that nostalgia accordingly. We can evaluate whether it's a, it's an, in fact, desirable configuration of features of life or not. But then it's at that level rather than the merely historiographical level, which I think bypasses how we are wired to use that language, how we're made and how we're made, particularly as storied creatures. We cannot help but inhabit the stories we are told and imagine that is not a problematic thing for christians it 's not a way of saying it's not real it's a way of saying it's a it's real in a different kind of way than the historian's interests perhaps or the journalist 's interests to be more specific but it's a different kind of reality all the same that we have an ethical relationship to Nostalgia can therefore become its own useful way to explore what we and our neighbors desire now. And it can be a useful, again, point of departure for exploring how we are thinking about the meaning of things and the meaning of ourselves. And we can evaluate the features that configure together for that nostalgic image accordingly. But what, what do you think about, about that? Is that along the lines of what you were after?
2: Yeah. I was just curious to hear, you know, your interactions with it. Within the mortise and tenon world, I think people think of us as doing just reenactment stuff. And I think that's why, you know, we've cited numerous times already Albert Borgman and his focusing, what is Mm. it about a typewriter or whatever, that it's it's the involvement and engagement aspect. And so those are the things that I've found, you know, if you're looking at, you know, why would someone want to hand stitch all their clothes and wear Victorian clothes? What's the, the good out of that that you're acknowledging you're talking about? Yes. I think, you know, people like Borgman and Pai are really highlighting this, this involvement uh with the world that it's not just an involvement, you know, completely isolated, but it's an involvement with people of the past it's associating with. So it's all connected there. And I think those are the kinds of things that can come out of that. Even at, you know, a medieval reenactment event, there are weekends where people are doing medieval reenactment. I've talked to some of the people who have done that and they really love sort of, Stepping into that world to interact with a time that they they don 't get to in their normal uh, daily yeah. life, what I see coming out of that is this desire to to in- interact and connect with the world and people in it there's
1: that expression often used you can 't go home again, and there's a lot of truth in that understood a certain way. I think the most common phenomenon for exploring in what way it 's true is is that phenomenon of people returning to the place of their upbringing. Many years later, Uh, Mike and I grew up in the same same part of Southwest State County in Miami and same school, same church context, all of that for many years. I know that when I go back to Miami and go back to that same place, and a lot has happened to that place since I left a thousand years ago, a lot has happened. They had two large properties. One of them has been completely sold and changed hands is now occupied by different people. And that's the place I went to elementary school and the place I went to church growing up. And that was a place one block from the house where I lived. And the other location has itself been dramatically renovated and changed in a lot of ways where I worked annual summer camps and where I went to high school and all of that. When I go back, it's a combination of nostalgic in a positive way and disturbing as well. And it's never always one or the other for me. But when I go back, if I'm sitting there waiting for for someone to come out of a building and I'm just sitting there looking around, I'm remembering when I was a counselor in camp and sat there and was joking around with with kids or playing basketball on that court and, and on this very court, that kind of a thing. Or I'm looking over another direction thinking, man, that was, you know, that was an awful thing that happened that one time, that day over there. And that's where it happened. Or places that meant a lot are no longer there at all. And it's disconcerting confrontation with reality (laughs) that you really can't go back again. Unless what we mean by that is go back in our minds, as it were, to that reality. It's an interesting phenomenon, at least. Today, as another example of that, is the day that we are recording this conversation. happens to be, in God's providence, the day that I am closing on the sale of my home in Coriopolis, now that I've moved to the Philadelphia area. So today, I've signed papers and I've agreed for someone else to live in the house that my kids grew up in. And that's harder than I expected it would be, especially as much stress and and difficulty that has gone into getting this thing ready for sale and then finally sold, handing over this home, which only makes sense to me for someone else to live in, is a strange experience. Perhaps you guys have experienced something similar before. It's very hard to understand, to explain, because it's not the things so much as the the lives live there and the stories written there, and yet they would not be the life or the stories unless those things were those things there, mm-hmm at that time so it's a really interesting experience is, is this something you guys have experienced at all
0: certainly at those multiple levels you know returning back to the, the place where i grew up or thinking i recently sold as i moved you know from one city to the next the the home that my two girls were, were born in. then we brought them home from the hospital and they they lived not as long as your your children in that house but it was a, as a home i spent a lot of time in there's an ev- evocative line by uh, Michelle de Charette about how haunted places are the only places worth living in and and those are places that you know are haunted quote unquote by by our memories by um, the layers of meaning that that have accumulated around it as we have lived in those spaces and so that certainly resonates and i'm also fascinated to go back a step just by the the discussion around nostalgia which often does get Brought up, if we look to the past for different models of being in the world, different models of work, or different models of relating to to one another, or ordering our communities, the accusation of, of nostalgia, because nostalgia is, I think, one of those words that, for many people, at least in certain, maybe more academic or intellectual circles, is, is almost entirely a pejorative term which I understand. And it reminds me of the way in which uh, Lewis and Tolkien had to defend their recourse to fantasy as a genre mm-hmm. uh, and says is, is that it's not escapism, right? And now it can be, right? I think yes, maybe this yes. is the point worth making, right? If my nostalgia or interest in the past is a vehicle of escapism from present responsibilities, you know, obviously that's a possibility. And I think externally, it may not look very different to the observer, you know, but internally for the person experiencing it, it would, it would be, you know, significantly different. And, and certainly that's something to, to be avoided. And I think it's worth judging, you know, what time are we nostalgic for? Is it a matter of fueling our moral imagination for the future, which I think is what I heard you describing Mark. which I thought is a you know, wonderful way of putting it, right? And I'm trying to remember, I, I I kept trying to think of the name of a writer who has talked about the the revolutionary potential of nostalgia because it's a, a way of highlighting the defects of the present, but it doesn't become a a vehicle for return, but rather for for moving forward in a more informed and wiser way, right? Mm -hmm. it reminds me of Lewis's discussion about the value of old books, right? You know, we will be, in Chesterton's phrase, you know, always children of of the present age, unless we're able to contrast it to something different. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Lewis says uh, cheekily that we could use the books of the future to do the same thing, but we have no access to them, right? So the only thing we have are the books of the past that give us at least a, a kind of leverage against being totally blinded by the the prejudices of our age. And so, you know, looking to the past can can have that way of, of fueling or work for a better future, a, a more serviceable future, more just future, et cetera. But there's a there's a temptation in taking up that path, which I I think is what many people try to guard against or resist when they talk critically about nostalgia. But I like to think of it, yeah, just as a desire. And and you can never return home because, you know, in a somewhat platonic key, of course, Lewis says, right, the beauty of the thing is never in the thing. It was always just coming through the thing, right? And so there's a a kind of eschatological reality that we're longing for in these desires that we tend to attach with certain places and times in the past. Some moments of wholeness. Uh, you know, I think I long for my past self sometimes in, in the artifacts that I don't quite want to throw away from my past. You know, there's a wholeness of myself across time that we've associated with these times and places and artifacts and and things. And so we don't desire those things, times and places. We we desire something that was coming through those moments that is still a kind of future hope. This is sort of the way that I I would think about these these dynamics.
2: It's just interesting to hear you talking about the houses and um, the connections Mm -hmm. you've had with family, because right now I'm in the middle, early middle stages of reconstructing an 1821 timber frame house with my family. Yes, indeed. Yeah, my, my wife and I, you know, we have three boys, we homeschool, and we have... This has been, since we were married, we said we wanted to build our house with our own hands, with our kids, as part of their education, uh, being at home and seeing that a person, a non-specialist, can actually build a house with family. And so it's interesting looking at something like that from this vantage point. We're in the middle of physically constructing the building right now, and in the constructing, we're not just making a structure that will shelter us, but we're making a dwelling. We're making a house together, all mm-hmm. of us together. And the reason that we're doing it is so that we would have these experiences, so that I would have my seven-year-old, my five-year-old chopping on the timbers that we're working on for the sills for the house. All of this stuff is all put together so that when they bring their kids back, they walk in and this is home. They have all these experiences woven into them. I think it's interesting looking at that kind of thing that um, whether you build a house or you build, you know, like in my context, a table or whatever, whatever you're doing, intentionally trying to bring people using craft as a bridge to bring people together is the way that these artifacts have their deepest meaning in a, in a relational way. It's not just a pretty table or a nice house or, you know, a nice return on investment, but it's actually a symbol of this relationship you have with other people.
1: Indeed. And. In keeping with what you're what you're both saying here at the end of of our conversation at at that stage of things, it's not a matter of denying the value inherent, if you will, to use that language of the thing itself of the the timber frames of the axe used in the cutting of the wood It's not a matter of denying the value inherently of the the device or the thing that is from my childhood that I now have and have to decide whether to throw away or not. It's not to deny that, but it is to say it is what it is, Mm -hmm. not apart from, but precisely in the midst of our appreciation of its relatedness. It's related to us. It's related to its maker. It's related to the world. It's related to time, my own maturation, development, and growth over time providential shifts and changes in my life it's related to all these things which are part of its actual meaning they're not added on to it as such but they belong by virtue of God's providence to why it is what it is at all uh, with the view to these things not apart from them which so it's not a denial of the goodness of things but it's an affirmation of it as a textured and contextual reality i, I wonder if this can bring us all the way back full circle at the end of our conversation today to where we began in our series, and that was with Hugh of St. Victor as one of the reasons why we came up with this initiative in the first place. What we have been talking about for some time today may seem quite unrelated to craftsmanship and workmanship, but in fact, nostalgia, meaning making, the storied nature of life, these are longer, more stretched out realities which help us appreciate the far smaller But still, for that very reason, meaningful stories, which go into the making of a thing, the process from beginning to end, what we were talking about earlier, in terms of the push and the drive and the hope for a fully automated future without friction, and therefore without traction, without texture, without the burden of our labor, is, for those reasons, also a thing without a story certainly without our story. And we are without it in terms of our story. We have no involvement in it. And as you were suggesting earlier, both of you in different ways, we, for that reason, also have no satisfaction in the result and in the thing itself. we had no invested interest in it. It cost us nothing. It didn't exercise a single thing about us. And we have not become anything by way of our relationship to it. And if we were to... Make that true for life as a whole, that nothing cost us anything, and nothing has formed us in our relationship to it. What are we left as, not just with, but as, at the end of that? The contrary vision is one we have, in fact, seen on display throughout the, the tradition of the church, though in different ways, and we have taken a special interest in Hugh of St. Victor's concept of the mechanical arts. Hugh of St. Victor, he did not invent the idea. He does account for what I think is the most significant revision of the idea for theological and churchly purposes. But he doesn't invent the idea. And the idea after Hugh of St. Victor undergoes still further development, for sure, uh, from when he's doing his work uh, around the 1120s or so. At the Abbey School of St. Victor in, in Paris. I'd like to just note a couple things about what Hugh was after as our last subject matter for discussion. Again, to bring things full circle, as it were, in case it might be helpful as you help us, help our listeners tie some things together. One of the key things to appreciate about Hugh St. Victor's model here is that he sees the mechanical arts as properly belonging to the realm of philosophy rather than simply being, as it were, related to it, but that the way he understands its philosophical quality is not by taking the route many more recent readers of Hugh have taken. With the rapid increase of interest in engineering in the modern world— It propelled in its own way a new interest in Hugh St. Victor and his mechanical arts as in some way anticipating the engineering revolution of modernity, so that we can look to what he was doing and see it as paving the way for now what we appreciate about the importance of labor as such and about work as such. Uh, And some Christians have taken that angle on the value of work discussion and have been preoccupied with the you know, defensively important, but preoccupied with the question of work's value as work. And there's a lot to say there and a lot that's helpful there. But that also misses what he was after. When Hugh listed the liberal arts and the so-called mechanical arts as the two facets of a view of philosophy, of a twofold view of philosophy, as it were, the liberal arts were technically divided into theory and logic. The mechanical arts were not detached from that liberal arts concern, but they, in their own way, served to function as an image for the philosophy considered under the first part. The mechanical arts are an image for philosophy's more proper subject matter, if you will. So the mechanical arts are not so much part of philosophy as an image for philosophy as a whole, so that their significance transcends and encompasses the more conventional categories of mechanical over here and liberal arts over there. He was especially interested in hands-on processes, hands-on activities, which, in his words, take thought for necessity the things we do because if we didn't do them, we could not survive, which he roots as far back as our making clothing to cover ourselves in Genesis. But everything ever since that really reduces to we do these things and have learned how to do them because without them we would not survive. He sees these as illustrations for the mission of recovering the divine likeness. These are figures, illustrations, they are... Images for the pulse beat, the why of philosophy as such. And that is the divine, the divine fellowship and everything related to that. This is why his approach to the mechanical arts has as much to do with philosophical psychology and the meaning of a human person as it does how to cut a piece of wood and why it's important to learn fabric making and so on. Anya Bergen is a recent scholar whose dissertation at Cambridge on Hugh St. Victor and others in the mechanical arts I have found immensely valuable, and I'm leaning very heavily on her research as I'm working on this in a separate context myself, but she has made a persuasive case that what Hugh St. Victor has in view, particularly as he appeals to the classical Greek tradition and Cicero and so on... What he has in view is nothing less than the traditional poetic vision for the mechanical arts, but also for the person who is supposed to be formed by them. So I wanted to say something briefly about what this means for Hugh to ask you how you think it might fit other things that we have said so far. Hugh is drawing this from the classical image of Mercury, the god Mercury, and the marriage of the gods Mercury and philology. The seven mechanical arts, he explains, are the seven handmaids, which Mercury received in dowry from philology. That relationship is, in fact, very important, because Mercury is, as it were, representing the concerns of philosophy as such, is associated with with boundaries, and philology is the verbalization or eloquence attaching to our right relationship to matters of philosophy. And it's in the philology category, the verbal eloquence, the speaking about that Hugh locates the mechanical arts. In so many words, he is arguing that by attending to how things are in the world, How things are in God's orderly cosmos, how things are all the way down to the moving of the insect on the ground, to how you turn wood into a home, to how you weave threads for fabric and so on. By attending to how things are, you are formed into someone who can speak well about how things are. And he expands the horizons here so much that he says that these seven handmaids, these are the seven mechanical arts, he says, these seven handmaids which Mercury received in dowry from philology are these because every human activity is servant to eloquence wed to wisdom. Where eloquence has the significance of verbalizing, articulating, as human beings exclusively can, uniquely can verbalizing reality and our interpreting of it properly, our our explanation of it properly, our negotiation of it properly. It's an image he makes very much of as he's pulling from the classical tradition of the gods, as well as uh, commending the mechanical arts as properly subject matter of philosophy, but not in the conventional way. And the image or the language he ends up using to explain this is the language of poetry oasis now he of saint victor is, has uh, often been seen as someone who had a low view of poetry and this is because in the same work that Escalicon, he does have a passage where he seems to speak pejoratively of poetry and of poets but as anya bergen demonstrates in her work i think quite persuasively he has in view there certain clever sophists who are manipulating words in his day in an illicit way and is going after them. They were called poets and that appears to be his referent. And there are other ways that what Hugh is saying seems to line up very well with an appreciation of the human person as poet. Poet, whether they write poetry or not. Because the point here is that our right relationship to how things are in God's world will enrich us and enable us to speak in a way that reorders and gathers reality. Since Hugh participates in that long tradition of seeing speech as the reordering or reassembly or gathering of things disparate or disjointed, and therefore not only a hermeneutical thing but a creative thing and a recreative thing, um, an ordering reality, something that fits very well what we do at Greystone in terms of the order of reality's subject matter in our course called by that name, and in other contexts. Hugh sees the raw data of actual human experience in the world as it is, rather than avoiding it. So the texture and friction-full life, he sees as the raw data of the experience which serves as the basis of the gathering of those experiences, which form ideas and images in our minds, which in turn are articulated. They account for the words we choose to use and the way we negotiate that reality relationally and otherwise. This is the poiesis, the poetry, which is a right reception of reality and a right, as it were metabolizing of reality in the works of faith, hope, and love. It's a verbal making or invention that parallels physical acts of making and invention. And you cannot have an appreciation of what you're doing in the one without having some experience or knowledge of what happens in the other. Your verbal making, which pastors are called to do, requires the wisdom that only comes from physical making or engaging with, by experience, engaging with the way the world really is. And when you lack one, you are rendered impotent in the other, as far as Hugh is concerned. So poetry is a verbal style, as it was in the ancient world. But for Hugh, it is also, frankly, a mode of life. It is a mode of life. It is the mechanical arts taking place in the marriage of wisdom and eloquence where you need the wisdom for it truly to be eloquence. But at the same time, to have the eloquence requires that you've learned something by way of your right relationship with the world as it is. This is among the, the richest things I have I have found in Hugh's model of the mechanical arts. But it's, it's something we could discuss more fully, perhaps in another context. But it includes longstanding features in philosophy and in theology, of appreciating the imitative nature of how things are in the world. On the one hand, they imitate how they were made to be, so they imitate God's design for things. Otherwise, things wouldn't work the way they do in in the natural world. But they are also designed to be imitated. So the human person is supposed to look at how things are in the world and learn. You know, look at the ant, you sluggard, and see how it works, and therefore has something to eat when it's hungry. There is an imitative, double-sided imitative reality, which is supposed to be a source of wisdom. It's imitative of God, the great artificer. It is also there to be imitated when wisely related to on the part of the human being. That, combined with seeing the human person as poetic, with appreciating the relationship between verbal eloquence or the poetic life, on the one hand, with attention of a deliberate sort to how things are, may help explain to some extent the challenge of our time when it comes to the inattentiveness that has kind of become our default way of living or threatened to become our default way of living and what the price may be ultimately for investing in that way of life. And that is having nothing or very little of substance really to say about life. Thoughts from you gentlemen about something we might take from Hugh along these lines and connect with things that we've discussed already?
2: Makes me think about this idea that you know you're talking about the making is is shaping you as well this this sort of reciprocal relationship that as you make you're being made this this is the way I would put it it just reminds me of this idea of if you think about apprenticeship or you think about a training situation whatever training situation you have as you go to a school or you go to a shop and you learn this particular trade. So it's all just one one direction. You're just receiving it. And then once you're finished, then you go out and then you just one direction produce. So first you just receive and then you go out and produce. I think that actually isn't the way that it actually plays out in real life, of course, that as you're working, uh, you are learning as you you are making the cut or you know teaching in a classroom or whatever, there's always this self-correction and feedback loop that as you are using a new cutting tool or a new piece of wood that you haven't worked before, some particular species and that grew in this weird spot, as you are doing the work, it's teaching you and it's shaping you. It's shaping the way that you think about the material. And so I just think, you know, it reminds me of, I think it was John Culkin who said, we shape our tools and thereafter our tools shape us. And, you know, that we have this idea that I think our tools are instrumental means that we accomplish what we set out to do. And if that's all that it is, I think that's only partially true but the cutting tool shapes off the back end too it shapes at the handle as well shaping our hearts shaping our desires shaping the way that we look at the world and i think that's what to me is so is so compelling about manual crafts is that you know mark as you were talking about the ordering of the world orders us you cannot get away from it (laughs) you can't work against the order of things, you know? And I think that's, what's so compelling for a lot of people who are living in a frictionless metaverse, you know, that um, where there are no boundaries, there is no such thing as particular way things are done. It is inherently satisfying. It is aimless. And so I think that, you know, this kind of discussion about craft work really has a grounding and a rooting effect to that. We are here in this world. And as we work, the satisfaction comes when we realize there's a there's a correspondence. We we respond back and forth. It is this satisfaction of this feedback loop. Everybody I know in craft reports the same sort of experience. I mean, that was great, and I don't have anything to add to to, to all of that.
0: So I was enjoyed enjoyed listening to, to those ideas articulated, though.
1: Well, thank you both very much indeed for that. We are at the close of our time for today's episode, but also for this series as a whole. So I'd like to to thank you both, especially for your thoughtfulness and your contributions throughout our our series of discussions on Greystone's Mechanical Arts Initiative. And of course, for your continued role in leading it. Very much uh, looking forward to the form, the shape this takes over time and how many wonderful people we will meet along the way. And perhaps even, Work with and certainly learn from, but I want to thank you both in particular, Michael and Joshua for helping Greystone on the way to eloquence wed with wisdom or wed to wisdom to use Hugh's language, where that eloquence is basically the faithful life in its every direction and every respect and the wisdom that is not our private property, but inherited tradition to us and gleaned ultimately from God's speech. His eloquent speech in the Lord Jesus Christ and through his word. Thank you, brothers, for your help, and I look forward to our next conversation in the Lord's Providence. Amen. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Greystone Conversations. Remember that Greystone members enjoy access to the entire growing library of Greystone lectures and events, including full course modules, at greystoneconnect.org. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe, spread the word, and consider supporting this podcast with the modest donation of just one dollar. Until next time, thank you for your support and for spending your time with us at Greystone.